You're listening to Privacy and Security Insights, brought to you by Picasso. Hello and welcome to Picasso's podcast series. We are on episode five and today we're looking at managing third-party supplier risk, a data privacy perspective. I am absolutely delighted to welcome Kirsten Mycroft. Kirsten is the Privacy and Data Ethics Officer from the Bank of New York Mellon and is also a Picasso Advisory Board member. Welcome Kirsten and these she's done an excellent short piece which you can see as obviously you clicked on or clicked through to hear the podcast these comments and thoughts are Kirsten's own not that of the Bank of New York Mellon just to make that clear but welcome we are delighted to have you and thank you for your fantastic paper thanks Steve I'm great to be with you and appreciate the warm welcome so third-party risk I mean it is one of the most kind of treacherous areas that you can go into when you think of data privacy, data security, you know, you're handing the keys of your kingdom to a trusted third party. So it, it and when we hear about these incidents, these breaches and, and, and potential signs, often you'll, you'll look back and see in the evidence that there was a third party involved in this. And so we know that this is a problem child for us. It's problematic. But I just wanted to start with my first question of the day. Can you elaborate on the specific benefits of third-party outsourcing? Because with all those risks that immediately spring to mind, how would these benefits be relevant in today's global business landscape? Sure, I echo your your thoughts there. It is a very tricky, complex area, so uh, nobody should feel that it's a daunting area. It is a daunting area, but you shouldn't feel uh, that it's unmanageable because it is manageable. And clearly, with all these risks, as you say, people are still outsourcing. So, so why are they doing it? Well, it, it really allows you to scale your business operations and your technology infrastructure quickly without having to make a permanent investment that requires the continuous maintenance, etc., it can give you access to specific industry expertise and innovation. So again, you might need to have the expertise of a particular individual, but it doesn't make commercial sense for you to hire somebody who's that subject matter expert on a permanent basis. And other things in terms of improved resilience of critical systems, other people, if their whole business model is focused around resilience and making sure they run resilient systems, then they, they may be better at it than you if that's not one of your core competencies. So it really allows you to focus on your core competencies, gives you some flexibility and can make uh, commercial sense and uh, enable you to be you know, more operationally efficient and reduce your costs. Wow. <clears throat> well, you certainly sold it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there are many benefits. You do immediately think about a bit about resilience and things like that. And I mean, especially with trusted third parties, we as a business have worked very closely with a third party software partner. And it's great, but it's always you worry about what if something could go wrong. I noticed in the article, you mentioned five key data privacy risks associated with those. Would you mind giving us, trying to bring that to life for us about the kind of real world examples and obviously the consequences of not managing those risks effectively, please. 
Sure. So I think the first one I talked about was accountability. You, you may have heard that saying, you can outsource the processing, but not the accountability. And I think yeah. ultimately, if something goes wrong, it's likely that your name as a company will hit the headlines, not some a small vendor that you may have used and who didn't get things right. So accountability is very, very important, making sure that you, know, you have a documented contract that articulates those role responsibilities, liabilities, and also your expectations of that third-party supplier. What do you expect them to do? Privacy and security by design, obviously that's very, very important if you are sharing personal data with that supplier. And, and again, if you don't make your privacy and security requirements clear to that supplier upfront, then you're probably likely to get whatever the default option is that's offered by that vendor as standard. And maybe that's sufficient for certain third-party services, but for others it won't be. And then you'll find if you suddenly want to add on extra controls later, that's going to be a lot more costly than if you'd thought about them and baked them in upfront with that supplier. Then I think compliance, though, you, you need to do your due diligence to get comfort that the supplier can actually meet all the obligations you, you're going to expect of them, whether those are regulatory, contractual, or adherence to your own corporate policy. And you need to find a way to get that evidence. You can't mm -hmm. just take someone's word for it. I heard someone the other day say to me, oh, but the vendors publish these documents. They say they take this very seriously. And well, that's not good enough if, as you said, yeah. if you're handing over the keys to your kingdom uh, or your data mm -hmm. kingdom. Then resilience, right? You want to make sure that your supplier is financially sound and that their products and services are resilient to threats. Because the last thing you want is that supplier suddenly goes out of business and you had no advance warning and that leaves you high and dry. Or yeah. equally, if, if their controls aren't up to scratch and they suffer a cybersecurity attack or some sort of critical market event that uh, you hadn't really thought through, it, it could leave you in a, in a bad position. And then I think the last one is artificial intelligence. We can't not mention AI, right? No. It's the yeah. it's the buzzy topic of the, of the moment. <laughs> But along with it, if, if your supplier is using AI, you know, if it's in, integrating them into uh, products and services, do you know what that AI is, uh, where it's been integrated? Yep. Do, you know, yep. do you know the provenance of the data that they use to train that model? There's been a lot in the press, hasn't there, Steve, about data scraping, people yep. scraping masses of data from the internet and then training their models on it. Did they actually have the right to do that? Did people yeah. know they were doing that? Probably not. So there we go. Those are sort of, I think those are the five. Yeah, no, that's, and, that's and a bit really of color around that. No, I, I think you're, you're really good points. Thank you, Kirsten. I, I totally agree. I, I've got more questions, so I'm sort of, forgive me, I'm cantering through these, but I really value your time. And then at Picasso, we're very grateful for you taking the time to write this article. One of the things that comes up time and time again is this concept of privacy and security by design. We know that it's crucial in data privacy. Can you explain how organizations practically implement this approach when working with third parties? So what kind of controls are typically necessary for safeguarding of that personal data? Sure. So I think, again, you know, we need to be proportionate if we're handing over really innocuous personal information, maybe some business contact information. That's a different picture to if you're handing over sensitive personal data like ethnicity or people's financial bank account details. So I think the first thing is proportionality there. And then once you've understood what those elements are, those personal data elements that you're sharing with the vendor, also remember, find out, are they going to onward share that information with anybody else? Are they going to subcontract any of the processing? 
because those sort of third, fourth parties need to, to come into your considerations as well. And then set the control requirements that you expect that supplier to implement. You have to be realistic. You can't set the bar way higher than you know, what you do yourself. I, I think mm -hmm. that's also something to bear in mind. But the typical controls you'd expect to see are cybersecurity baseline controls for encryption, making sure that they've got a regular program of patching any security vulnerabilities. What are their arrangements for business continuity and disaster recovery? And do they test those? Do they have policies and procedures and training in place for the staff at that organization? And do they have a mature incident response program? These days, it's not if something goes wrong, it's more likely when something goes wrong. And so again, you need to make sure that they've got that incident response in place. Are there clear roles and responsibilities, proper access controls? Very often, these security breaches are caused by people having excessive access or not practicing good password hygiene, for example. And then also another thing to look at is safeguards for the cross-border transfers of personal data. Yep. Um, we've all seen the fallout from uh, the Schrems 2, as it's known. Um, yep. So, yeah, making sure that you've dotted the I's and, and crossed the T's on that, um, that's important. Well, thank you. That's very extensive. And reading through the article, it does emphasize the importance of collaboration. That comes through really key amongst different departments or functions. What would you say about that? When it comes to third-party risk, is that we can't work in silos? Absolutely. And we've got to remember there are many third-party risks besides data privacy. And what we want to do is guard against duplicating effort, both in terms of assessments. So, for example, I would work very closely with cybersecurity colleagues rather than yeah. the privacy team go and do cyber assessments. That doesn't make sense. But also from the vendor's perspective, imagine if you were receiving requests for information and assessment and being pinged for various documents from 10 different teams. That's just not a sustainable, efficient way of operating. And I don't think it'll do your relationship with your supplier much good. So, so really, it's also important. Most companies, depending on their size, have some form of central sourcing or procurement function and, and an associated operating model. And really, you want to be part of that. You don't want to have a siloed privacy assessment unit out on the side. And you want to collaborate with your partners like legal on the contracting side, risk and compliance, cybersecurity, as we've mentioned, the business supplier managers who manages those relationships day to day and, and your sourcing or procurement function. And then I think the other thing people forget about sometimes is the assurance side of things. Now, having internal audit or other sort of compliance testing function come and look at your program can be very beneficial to identify where you might have some gaps that, that you haven't thought about. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. In the paper uh, uh, article that you wrote, you also allude to the, yeah, you can't boil the ocean, right? So, uh, and you mentioned that in one of your explanations, but what a tiering criteria for third party supplier engagements look like? How does it work? Would you just mention? Yeah, sure. So I think from a privacy perspective, I've probably touched on some of these already a little, but it is looking at the sensitivity levels of the personal data you're sharing, mm -hmm. yep. volumes, what is that third party actually doing with that data for you? And are they servicing just a part of your company or the entire organization? What is the extent of cross-border data transfers? How many places around the globe will that information be stored? And then also looking at supplier certifications. Can they show some evidence of independent third party review of their privacy or cybersecurity program? I think that also comes into play when thinking about their overall privacy risk of a vendor. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's really good. Thanks. 
And I mean, you've alluded to it both in your paper and, and what you were saying earlier about this need for ongoing monitoring of third party relationships. What kind of insights into any methods could you provide for maintaining that? Because that must be a huge amount of effort. So how do you, how do you monitor and manage it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, this comes down to the tiering, right? You can't assess suppliers with the same degree of rigor, regardless of their risk profile. So it does need to be proportionate based on that. And the sorts of things that are very common in industry are, number one, just keeping an eye on the, the vendors or the suppliers' services. Are they changing? Uh, and what does that mean for the risk profile and the, the ongoing assessment? You can use a combination of self-assessment questionnaires where you ask the vendor to provide responses to things that are of concern to you and give you some supporting documentation as evidence of their responses. As I mentioned, you can request copies of independent sort of ISO certifications for security, privacy, quality, or some vendors are willing to provide a SOC 2 report. Again, as an independent company that's come in to assess their controls, and then they write a report. Mm -hmm. And you might want to actually go for your most critical vendors. You might want to go and do an on-site assessment. Go and see for yourself. Ask the, the, the supplier personnel the questions you, you have for them. Ask them to show you things, walk you through things do some testing. So again, there's a whole spectrum of, of different ongoing monitoring activities you could embark on depending on the, the risk of that supplier. Yeah. And, and I suppose it does just depend on that list, doesn't it? That priority list, how much time that takes and yeah. the level of effort um, that you put into that. So very much horses for courses, I suppose. So listen, we've come to the end of this podcast. I, I, I did say it very quickly. Yeah, um, certainly did. But I just wanted to, if you've got uh, some final kind of practical advice you'd like to give um, the readers and listeners here today, uh, Kirsten? Sure. So I would just say that a third-party risk, as we've said, is a very important um, area, and the management of that needs to be a core part of any enterprise data privacy program and your broader approach to risk management in the organization. Now, on the plus side, it's an essential component of demonstrating accountability for data privacy. But your stakeholders need to know that whether they provide their personal data to you or to your trusted third party, that it will be safe and secure and that their privacy rights will be respected. Wonderful. Perfect. <laughs> what a great piece of advice. Some fantastic insight. I want to thank you very much on behalf of Picasso uh, for joining us today, Kirsten. Definitely look forward to um, hearing more from you with, with your vast insights and knowledge on these. I'm signing off. Steve Wright here, also on the Picasso board. Uh, it's been a delight to speak to you, Kirsten. Thank you once again. I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks so much, Steve. <laughs>